Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. And we're live. Uh, We are here with another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast today. My guest is a friend. These are always really fun episodes to do when I'm friends with somebody off camera as well. Uh, Our guest is Jen Bruce. Jen, thanks for doing this. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, Jen is a functional nutritionist whose passion is teaching people how to use nutrition, lifestyle, and alternative medicines to support their recovery from addiction, chronic stress, mood swings, fatigue, chronic pain, medication dependencies, and a lot of other chronic conditions so they can feel good in their own skin and experience true freedom, even when it seems impossible. And I'd say kind of with a lot of the areas you work in, especially when it seems uh, impossible. So Uh, really interesting convergence of specialties there. And I think today we're going to focus quite a bit on the, you know, addiction piece, but not necessarily what people might think uh, regarding traditional addiction recovery and like where holes are and where people struggle and, and uh, frankly, like, why is it so often unsuccessful? (laughs) I think is another topic we could bring up. So I'm curious I haven't run into very many people in doing this for quite a while now who work in that space of like nutrition, lifestyle, and addiction recovery as as kind of a, a specialty. And I'm curious if you'd like to share a little bit about how how you wound up there. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, really it was informed by my own experience and Um, my 17 year journey through my own addiction to primarily alcohol, Um, you know, and when I got into recovery, when I had my first drink, like 11 years ago, um, you know, the things, so what I learned early on in my recovery was that, um, you know, the addiction, and, and I like to use a broader term of this in today's world and in the Western culture too, just anything that's like, you know, taking us away from our true self, Um, that we continue to do regardless of the fact that it brings negative consequences into our life. And so that can be substance use disorder. It can be relationships, shopping, work, like all kinds of things. But in my case, it was with alcohol primarily. Um, But then I, I came to realize that that's not really the issue. That's the medication or the solution to the issue. And um, what it what it carried with me since I was a young girl, and what was still remaining after I was able to learn how to live my life without um, turning to drugs and alcohol for relief, was that like the anxiety, the depression, you know, um, issues with immunity, like chronic health issues, um, chronic pain, those kinds of things were like still lingering. And when I first got into recovery, I went through the traditional route, which was the twelve step fellowship. Back then, there wasn't a lot else available. There wasn't a lot of resources online like they are today. Um, But I realized early on that there was going to be a tremendous, um, there's going to be more healing needed than just working on my mind. You know, I committed myself to like the 12 step process and it was wonderful. 
and it saved my life. But I was one of the many people that found that, you know, not to disregard the beautiful progress I made there that I needed like 24 steps. Right. And my first mentor uh, had worked in the field uh, for 35 years. She'd been in recovery for 36 years. She ran a sober living house for women out of her house in LA for 31 years. And the first thing she started to teach me about besides the work we were doing in 12 step um, was the importance that nutrition um, and self-care and a holistic approach to healing my health were going to play if I was going to change the way I feel effectively so that I don't need to change the way I feel anymore, which is what I define as a sustainable long-term recovery. Okay. So like many in, in this field or fields that we cover, it's, it's uh, from personal experience born a career and a trajectory of like wanting to help others with what you learned. And, and there's a few points in there, I think is one, um, sometimes when people hear the word addiction, I like that you pointed out that that can mean a lot of things. I think a lot of people listening to this or listening to anything that where addiction comes up immediately, they're like, oh, this isn't for me, or I don't have an addiction or I don't whatever, because they're not, um, they're not an alcoholic. They're not shooting up. They're not doing things that they view as, you know, those are addicts yet they have like 106 pairs of shoes in their fridge or, or in their closet, not their fridge. That'd be a whole different disorder um, <laughs> or in their closet or they, you know, every day they binge out on Netflix for seven straight hours or every day they, you know, I think, or food, or every time they get upset, they eat a pint of ice cream or things like that. Like, I think that so much when it comes to addiction in, in the broader sense of the term uh, flies under the radar. Like people don't really view it as like um, a problem or uh, something that even needs a solution or it doesn't apply to them. Like I don't do anything like that. And I think mentioning shopping and unhealthy relationships, people addicted to drama, to stress, to all these things um, that the same root causes and healing routes tend to apply to all, uh, whether somebody is doing retail therapy or they're um, drinking or using substances or people or whatever it is. So I just think, I think that's really important to, to point out because I used to be one of those people that was like, I'm not an addict. And then once I started to learn more about it, I was like, oh, actually I use this thing and this thing and this thing so that I don't feel those things. And you mentioned that as well, that yeah, great progress from the 12-step program. And our intention here is not to throw shade at mm -hmm. any program or any organization out there, or anybody who's getting help in any sort of way. But I'm, I'm pretty familiar with 12-step program. One of my best friends uh, is seven years clean through the program. Um, I think the 12 steps are great. And I like how you mentioned I learned I, I think there should be 24 steps. Because in my understanding of the 12-step program, there's not much discussion around nutrition or lifestyle or the way people live their lives or even around root causes of addiction of like how did I end up using this thing or doing this thing or why was I doing it it's a lot more about like how do I stop this behavior mm -hmm. and that's a great triage like that's that's a step that has to happen um, but I agree that I think there's there's more steps I think involved so you mentioned root causes. And I think you mentioned some things mind-wise, but uh, you work in a physical 
way uh, with different types of root causes that people might not realize. Like, I think we could talk about trauma and how trauma leads to addiction. And I think there's more discussion around that now, um, which is great. And it's awesome to see that really going. But I think things like nutrient like deficiencies and vitamin deficiencies and, and sleep and poor lifestyle habits and things like that don't get mentioned. <clears throat> and so in that area of nutrition and nutrients and vitamins and lifestyle, um, I guess where are, how does that come into play as a root of depression or as of addiction? And then like, where does it come into play in the healing and recovery side? Yeah, sure. Um, so the way that I've come to work with people and, um, that I've been able to, you know, pretty radically heal myself is to understand even in the progressive movement now where we're starting to hear more discussion on like trauma and emotional healing and, and these kinds of things. In addition to what we've been doing in the past, which is just working on the mindset, changing the behaviors is, um, you know, dropping down even deeper to what these things mean and recognizing that like they're all connected and the root is chronic stress. It is um, trauma, you know, trauma is a chronic stress and, you know, just recognizing that, you know, it's not, we need to heal the trauma and improve our lifestyle and our nutrition. It's like, you know, when we've been traumatized, if, if somebody has this even medical label of PTSD, it's not an emotional wound alone. It's actually a physical wound too. this chronic stress, like, you know, drains the vitality, um, and can keep our immune system um, not functioning properly. It strips the vital nutrients. It's like, you know, if we're in a car and our, our, our foot's on the gas pedal and we're constantly going 100 miles an hour, it's really similar to like what the body's going through when we're living with chronic unresolved trauma or chronic stress in the present moment, whatever it might be. And these things have to get worked out in layers because generally if there's been like intergenerational trauma, it's gonna drive our behavior. If we've had unhealed trauma in our own life, it's gonna to continue to replay itself in our daily life until we've resolved it. So the mindset work, the deep emotional healing, the spiritual healing that we do has to coincide with understanding the fact that, that these issues affect the body too. And we can look at brain scans and see that the brain actually becomes altered and damaged after these experiences in one's life. So like, I like to equate it to, you know, somebody got a real thrill and like to jump off building tops and cities. And finally one day like fell down and like, didn't, you know, get to the other side of the building that they were jumping from and like broke all their bones, you know, um, if they just stopped jumping off the top of buildings, they're, they're not going to get re-injured perhaps, but that person's also going to need to go to the hospital and get their physical body repaired. So in a similar way, like if we're not bringing in the, the recognition of the way that this chronic stress damages our bodies, our brains, our nervous systems, our gut health, our immunity, um, we're never totally going to get to the other side of this because our body and our brain needs to be functioning and be healthy in order to have a healthy mind, you know? So it's really difficult to fix the mind with the mind, especially if the brain isn't online, um, you know? And so getting back to the trauma piece too, in, in the addiction thing, you know, most of us are escaping daily in some way uh, to soothe that unhealed chronic stress that we're living with 
in today's world and, and especially in the American culture and whatever we're doing to distract ourselves um, is taking us away from living our life and, and being in the present moment, which is the only way that we can do that, right? So there's a lot of talk about substance use disorder and addiction and, oh, I'm not that. But in some ways, people that have gotten to the point where it's so painful that they have to turn to substances, they're almost at an advantage because that's when it gets so bad that you're forced to like start doing the things that you need to actually change to get the life that everybody wants, but very few people are motivated to do the work that it takes to get there, you know? I like the analogy with the broken bones is like, you know, a lot of damage happens to the brain, to the body. We get nutrient deficiencies. You get the gut. I'm sure there's damage, especially with alcohol uh, and the, in the nervous system. It's like removing the substance stops putting gasoline on the fire, mm-hmm. but it doesn't put out the fire. It doesn't repair the damage of the fire. And I would guess that part of the reason why, and you probably know better stats than I do, but recovery for more conventional recovery. Like if somebody goes into rehab or they, you know, enter some uh, inpatient type of program or whatever, really, really low success rates. Uh, How much of that do you think has to do with the fact that like, okay, these people did stop taking these things, but they're deficient across the board. They have this damage, this damage, this damage. Like I can't speak from experience. Uh, I've never, I used to consume a lot of things, but I never would have considered myself an alcoholic or an addict. I've never been through withdrawal. I've never gone through that process of like removing that thing and then dealing with how I felt afterwards. But I'm guessing that part of the reason people feel so terrible when they first come off of substances is because of those deficiencies, that damage, right? So then it's way harder to like stay clean, stay sober, or stop doing the thing that you're trying to do because you feel awful. You can't focus. Your brain's not there. You're depressed. You're anxious, right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, statistically we see, and I always like to say in the, um, you know, the addiction treatment industry, that the statistics are probably a little bit vague, but what we do see generally, and this has been my personal experience too, because I've gone all around the world. I've been, you know, deep in the yoga recovery community, uh, the nutrition for recovery, you know, I've been uh, around all the recovery communities at one point or another and in different locations in the world. I've worked with clients going through traditional treatments like the Betty Ford Clinic. And many of my clients go down to Mexico to utilize Ibogaine, which I'm a huge proponent for as well. But I see the the success rates about the same across the board, no matter what. Um, And it's about an eight success an 8% success rate. Right. And so, um, in my niche world of like nutrition for addiction recovery there, I know a few people that run, um, like holistically based, um, treatment centers for addiction and also mental health recovery, because it all kind of comes together. Um, but in those programs where they're, they're using the things that already work, you know, for people from traditional recovery programs. And then in addition to those things, and in addition to the mental, spiritual, emotional healing that we must go through, they also bring in things like, um, you know, nutrition specifically for healing the brain and body from whatever the people have been through. And in those treatment centers, and this is like post like two years post-treatment where they check back in with people, it's like an 80% success rate, right? And so it's not that like any one way is superior over the other. And like, you know, like I said, it's so important to incorporate all of these things together and the addiction or mental health, because it's physical, it's mental, it's, it's spiritual. 
um, is that when we bring in the physical side of the, the piece, then we're creating a much more stable foundation. Um, you know, I like to use the analogy of like a three-legged stool. So, you know, the recovery process, whether it's addiction, whether it's trauma, whether it's mental health, it's, it has to be, um, you know, a lot of people take the spiritual route, right? And we can do it that way. We see people doing it that way, but it's like the relapse rates are really high. It's not so much that that route doesn't work. It's just not meant to be a standalone process, right? Um, or if we bring in, you know, the psychosocial aspect of it and even work on those tools, then we have two legs on the stool. So like, then we get a little bit more stable, you know? Um, but if the wind blows, it's still pretty easy to get knocked off on your stool. And so when we're following recovery paths that just like have one or two legs on the stool, it's going to be like, we have to be much more disciplined. Um, there's a level of freedom we don't have in our life, you know, whatever we're doing, we have to do it very regularly. And, and, you know, and if stress, when stress arises, um, we're much more likely to kind of get tipped over. Now, when we bring in the third leg, the physical leg, and put that on the bottom of the stool with the other two, then we've got a, a really strong foundation that is pretty unshakable. And, you know, recovery becomes much more natural and much more um, graceful. You know, like um, one of my teachers would always say that um, the, the key here to sustainable recovery is to build up our inner resources so that we can meet the demands of our exterior life. And there's a gap there for anybody that's been through like a traumatic event in their life or has struggled with something long-term like addiction, like our reserves are going to be low. We've been burning through them. And many of us may have been born that way because we were born to stress mothers who have been born to stress mothers and on and on. So filling that gap with our resources, then life, can happen and we can be okay no matter what the stool analogy is perfect i was like starting to try to think up an analogy and then you just drop the stool and i'm like i can just stop trying to figure that out jen already has it but yeah it it makes a lot of sense and and you mentioned the brain that that you can do scans on the brain and like you can tell the brain of an addict or alcoholic or different types of addictions do different things to the brain i'm guessing there's specific like nutrients uh, too, that oftentimes people, uh, I don't know if that would be substance specific or substances as a whole, but I'm wondering if you could just share a couple like common nutrient deficiencies that you know for sure. Like if somebody's fresh off, like fresh into recovery and they've been struggling for a long time, like odds are they might be deficient in X. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a great biohack that I use with people and it's used um, with nutrition for addiction recovery. Um, and it's called amino acid therapy. And so we can look and we now know through genetic testing and by the many, many decades of studies done by like doctors like Dr. Kenneth Bloom um, and others that um, there's 12 genes associated with addiction. And again, like genetics come into play, but we know that genetics are just a response to our perception of our environment now, and they can, the outcomes can be changed. But when we see people that have addictive tendencies, um, and this is a spectrum disorder too, it's not like you have the, you know, diagnosis of addiction, um, you know, like Kenneth Blum, coined the term reward deficiency syndrome. And there's four quadrants. And within each quadrant, there's two um, rows of symptoms and only one half of one of the four quadrants. So one eighth of the syndrome of substance use disorder, we can see depression, um, different kinds of depression too, like depression 
you know, you go into your Western doctor and they just have you see, you know, fill out and see if you're depressed or not. There's different kinds. There's, there's apathetic depression where we have no motivation, where everything's flat. We just don't care versus, and that would be like, um, that would be a dopamine deficiency. Um, you know, we look at, um, and with dopamine deficiency and like the low, um, motivation, we'll see things like ADD, ADHD type, um, tendencies, and then we'll see a tendency towards, um, addiction to stimulants, you know, whether it's coffee or, um, cocaine or methamphetamines. And unfortunately at younger ages, when children get diagnosed with these types of things, they get put on medications that are stimulants. So that, you know, raises the likelihood that they'll grow up, I think by about 75% to become uh, drug addicts. So, um, you know, that's dopamine. Um, you know, we can look in to see like depression that's more irritable and angry and obsessive and, um, you know, things like nightmares and phobias and cravings for um, carbs and sugar and alcohol. Uh, and also, um, you know, people that might respond well for a while to antidepressants, that would be indicative that they're like low in serotonin. And so, you know, like with dopamine, we can bring in a nutrient like tyrosine, which is an amino acid. Um, with serotonin, we can bring in a nutrient that's also an amino acid called tryptophan or 5-HTP. Um, many people probably know about that um, uh, with addiction in the reward deficiency syndrome, we can look and see with the people that have endorphins have a tendency to be highly emotionally and physically sensitive to pain. Um, we'll see even in younger kids, like tendency towards self-harm because that release endorphins releases endorphins. We'll see tendency, um, for food addiction, but in the form of like bread and, um, dairy products because gluten and dairy actually turn into morphine like substances in the brain, um, and can trigger the opiate cycle for people. And then these people will tend to go for numbing substances like opiates and sedatives. And so with endorphins, we'd bring in like a, a, a DPA, D-phenylalanine, which is actually a synthetic amino acid that was created uh, quite a while ago to bring in to help reduce chronic pain patients' needs for opiates. Um, and that can work wonders, right? Um, and then GABA is another one that's associated. And this is all the dopamine reward cascade in the brain. Um, and dopamine, um, low dopamine, um, it's kind of the, like the broader, um, thing that we see associated with addiction, because that's the like pleasure, uh, getting a sense of reward out of things in life. Um, you know, so reward deficiency would be doing sometimes, um, very extreme things in one's life in order to balance that out because we need the, that sense of reward and pleasure in our life so badly. Um, but another one involved on that pathway is GABA. And people that are deficient in GABA um, tend to be overwhelmed, really stressed out, really tense, and um, they will turn to things like sedatives, barbiturates, and these are the people that we see, you know, going to their doctor with quote unquote anxiety disorder and getting prescribed things like Xanax. Um, and we can bring in the, the nutrient for that is actually GABA or L-theanine, and those both target um, the GABA receptor in the brain. There's a little bit of controversy around whether or not GABA should be working though, because um, theoretically it's too large of a molecule to pass through the blood brain barrier. So for those that want to go with that school of thought, then L-theanine is a really good um, nutrient to bring in. And then importantly to know when we're using amino acids to correct the brain chemistry, um, 
it can do wonders. And some people will feel better in like 20 minutes. And most people report like unbelievable um, improvements after a few weeks and a few months. Um, but when we're looking at bringing these in, it's important to know that these nutrients don't work on their own. They have, they require cofactors. Um, which are just other nutrients that work with them to create the end product, which are neurotransmitters. So it's also really important to take a high quality, um, full spectrum, uh, multivitamin mineral supplement, because chances are you're depleted in those two. So the amino acids come from protein. They're uh, the most broken down, um, uh, end result of digesting our protein in our body. Um, and so we can get them from the diet from um, animal protein is the best source with therapeutic levels for amino acids. But unfortunately, like when most people have been through long-term chronic stress, the digestive system isn't working properly. So this is a beautiful way to like bring these nutrients, nutrients in so they can be like bioavailable to the brain right away. And then when we use them, it can help curb a lot of the like cravings the negative behavioral patterns and even boost our mood because that's the big obstacle I see for most people that feel these ways um, to take the first steps to even doing what they need to do to heal themselves. Um, so amino acids would probably be my first go-to for people. Yeah, that's, thank you. That was really thorough. And uh, I, I read a book on that, I don't know, a long time ago, right? When I first started in this, in this field. And then I didn't, I kind of, winged it like I didn't have anybody to help me or guide me or test me or anything and I was like oh I'm that but I'm that but I'm that but I'm also this and I'm this so I was taking like piles of amino acids and I think um you know the work you do and working with people to kind of help them figure out okay I might benefit from this or maybe in this dose or help people I think it's important to have guidance and these can be pretty easy quick things you can try that um, amino acids aren't very expensive. I think the DPA was a little expensive when I was trying, but because it's the synthetic one, but most of that stuff is pretty cheap. And um, I take L-theanine. That's also in green tea for people who are tea drinkers. It, it like blunts the jitteriness of caffeine, which I like to drink tea and I like to not be a jittery mess. So I take theanine in the morning and it helps with that. So that's a, a great, you know, these things are, it's not a mystery like the symptoms can often be this deficiency and this neurotransmitter and these amino acids can, can go there. So I think that that's, you know, probably not something that's taught to people fresh out of, you know, into recovery in a 12 step program and going through any sort of treatment in a lot of places. So um, I would guess when you mentioned people can have reactions in 20 minutes or a couple of weeks that, it makes it much easier to stay on course and do what you're doing. If you don't feel apathetic, if you don't feel overwhelmed, if you don't feel as anxious, uh, your baseline, like you said, with the stool is much more stable and, and this could be really helpful. You mentioned physical, does exercise come in somewhere here? I didn't even think about that, but I would guess that that's a pretty important part of a recovery program. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. And so even, you know, we, we keep shrinking down what we're talking about, but, you know, it, it's so important for us to not just get on. We're always, I've learned on my own healing journey. I was always looking for the next thing I was going to discover and that was going to fix me. Right. And then I got wise and realized that it's not ever going to be one thing. It needs to be all of it and different things are going to serve me at different times. And so when we're coming in 
And I just want to get back to you saying that you tried amino acid therapy and it was so many supplements and all this stuff. And that is really common feedback. That was my experience too. So like, I love to use those as a biohack to be able to get over that first waves as we're swimming out to calmer seas. And it's, it's the fuel that we need to do and show up to our, our, our recovery meetings or our therapist or our family or whatever it is so that we can actually like absorb and digest and get the nutrients out of the work we're doing on the emotional level. Um, but then the nutrients aren't the only thing that produce these um, chemicals in our body, right? So exercise is awesome for endorphins. Um, another thing you'll see with people that tend towards low endorphins is, um, you know, getting addicted to exercise, which can be a thing too, right? Um, and there's a tendency after we've done nothing for so long. And if we're, if we've had depression, if we've had anxiety, if we've had addiction issues, it's very unlikely that we've had a good regular exercise routine. So I experience myself and what I see so many people doing is trying to jump into all these like fad, you know, workouts and CrossFit and all this stuff and all the benefits. And this can be the same thing with the diet too. Right. And so what I've learned is that we really need to like meet ourselves where we're at. Um, healing is better than trying to reach the ideal. And you don't want to take somebody that was on the couch, um, you know, being a potato for many, many years um, uh, and start training for a marathon right away. That person's going to need to start walking around the block first and getting their body moving. And so at the beginning of the recovery journey, and especially when we're healing from trauma and stress, I think it's vital also keeping in mind that like time is usually an issue for people, money. So if we can knock some birds out with one stone, it's great. So like mind body practices, um, gentle movement, like yoga, um, or something else like that is amazing. Um, cause we don't want to over-exercise at the beginning because what's also going to be happening. And one of the reasons that we see dopamine deficiency is it relates back to chronic stress or unhealed trauma is that our adrenal glands have been overworked for so long. And there's a condition called adrenal fatigue. And it's basically our adrenals aren't outputting um, enough cortisol and adrenaline anymore, which we need. I mean, that serves, we've, we've had such a negative um, viewpoint on these, on these stress hormones in our society because we're under so much stress, but they actually animate us, give us energy, give us focus. You know, we should wake up refreshed in the morning. Um, and so when we start to go and like over push ourselves with exercise, um, we can continue to do the damage that's been done from stress. Because when we talk about stress and that's really like where my work comes in, it's, it's to open up a deeper, broader understanding of what stress is. It's not just um, a bad relationship with a spouse or a job that we don't like or or whatever it might be, or something that happened to us in our childhood that we haven't worked through yet. I mean, stress on our body can be that we're working out too hard every single day at the gym. So it's really important for us to like check in with ourselves and see what's actually feels good. Um, we shouldn't feel destroyed or exhausted after a workout, you know, and then we build up and what's going to be good for somebody right now at the beginning of their healing journey is going to be really different six years later. Um, so movement every day, super important, but um, pushing ourselves may be, um, you know, giving us the opposite results of what we're going for. Gotcha. I, I saw that when I used to work with uh, clients for health clients and a lot of them, I got a disproportionate, I don't know how, but when I first started, uh, after I finished the FDN training and, and started to run some labs and I would get people who wanted to run these hormone panels and the stress and all this stuff. And I was getting a disproportionate amount of women who ran marathons 
and like distance runners, endurance athletes, and then like figure competition type models to like, you know, get super, super shredded uh, folks. And like my first recommendation to both of them, which lost me a lot of clients was your hormones are destroyed because of the thing that you do all the time. (laughs) And whether it's in the gym five hours a day and, or running 20 miles a day or whatever, like my recommendation started, like I'll work with you. And the first thing is that you're going to have to dial back your training because we're not going to be able to get anywhere if this is at this level. And they were like, well, my other stress levels are low. And I'm like, I don't think that you're grasping the amount of stress it puts on the body to run for three hours. And like, so I've seen that too, in the world of addiction too, like people, you know, Oh, I got clean. And I'm like, Oh, cool. What are you doing now? And they're like, I run marathons. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Now, now the marathon obviously isn't going to be as destructive to like certain aspects of their lives, like the running as whatever they were doing before. And uh, I've seen the replace, re- replacement of one, one with the other uh, because it's, it's the neurotransmitters. They're, they're looking for the same, the same kick, the same feeling. And I almost raised my hand when you were talking about the dopamine and learning about low dopamine is like really helped me like little tips about like, if you have a bunch of things to do in a day, make a super simple little boxes you get to check off (laughs) instead of like checking boxes or crossing things off or like little tiny rewards throughout the day for your dopamine, uh, dopamine deficient friends out there. That's been a big changer for me. Yeah. Yeah. And and these dopamine deficiencies actually served us at one point, like with the genetic testing that I work with sometimes with people. Um, and also, you know, the, the chart that I use with people to fill out for the amino acid therapy, it's just really interesting for people to get to see how they're made because the main gene that's associated with dopamine deficiency, they call the warrior gene because it was people who used to be the hunters and gatherers and tribes, you know, and that, that in, born, like I have it. And what it feels like is that I burn through dopamine, like super fast, right? It's like that girl that can have six cheeseburgers and stay like super thin because her metabolism just crazy. Those of us who struggle with the dopamine balance thing, um, it's really that we just are high metabolizer. We, we metabolize dopamine faster than other people, which would have made us like the star hunters and gatherers back where our people came from. And, you know, I've gone back my family lineage and they were like, hold on. I want to pause that. That would cause the feeling that's good that you get from catching the thing or finding the thing or killing the thing or whatever it is. It would cause that high to go away faster. Mm -hmm. So then you'd be out hunting again or finding more things. Right. Exactly. I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit that's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast. A gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now back to your episode. So, you know, when we're talking about addiction and these distractions from, you know, life being a broader thing in today's world, you know, we can really look at how our consumer culture is designed to, to catch that aspect of ourselves and, and become distracted all the time. Exactly. The yeah. phone. Yeah. 
and the screen and social media and you know these the dings the buzzes the notifications the messages the things every single one of those is like designed by people who understand these things very well right to give you the little like ping oh, i feel awesome i just got a thing right mm -hmm. to keep you attached to this exactly yeah. and so this is how the spiraled and you know addiction starts and ends too and so yeah is, is it switching out to running marathons better than having a heroin addiction absolutely but like you know I, I really feel like most people that are still in these cycles don't even understand so when we get a better understanding of how we're wired and why we are the way we are and recognizing that it was actually a thing that could serve us and that you know one of the main laws in physics is that we can't create or destroy anything in a closed unit which goes all the way from ourselves all the way out to the universe is like rather than trying to beat this thing and stop it we need to say hey this is how i'm wired how can i transcend this and transform this into something that's going to serve me rather than tear me down you know once i understood that i metabolized dopamine like that i can base my lifestyle in a way understanding that that's how I am and allow that to serve me rather than to con you know, constantly be bringing me back where I never wanted to go back to again. You know, so this understanding um, is huge. It allows and you to have more compassion for yourself too. Yeah. Like understanding a lot of these things really helps me and even bringing it to the addiction itself. Like I think uh, we tend to, I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to speak for other people, but when I notice that I have like an addiction or a repetitive pattern or some sort of thing I want to not do or that I view as bad or whatever, there's an immediate jump to like vilify that. Like I'm shitty because I do this thing or I'm bad because I do that. Like there's this jump to that. And at one point doing that thing probably saved your life or helped you be able to survive how you felt or the conditions you were in or where you were. And the part of you that wants to still do that thing uh, is still trying to do that. Like is still trying to help you is still trying to like, Oh, that's really painful. Let's not feel that. Let's do this. Remember this. We like this thing. Let's do this thing over here. This is safer. Let's keep you from that. And realizing that in the work that I've done, you know, uh, in Gabor's program and elsewhere, I think that, for me, making changes and shifts away from certain behaviors or patterns becomes easier and more successful when it's not adversarial. It's not like, that's the bad me, this is the good me, or that's the devil, this is the whatever, or the demons. I, I don't like when people use those words, oh, that's my demons. It's like, your demons were like, they had your back when nobody else did. And so I think reframing that, have you, have you experienced that? Or like, could you speak to that? angle at all oh yeah i mean that's been my experience and the requirement um you know for forgiving myself it's crazy to come out of destructive patterns and realize you know that you were doing certain things but you know at every point it was serving me and you know, and when we have these patterns arise, it's even in our physical body, it's not that our body's sick or broken, like we've been led to believe it's compensating our body's perfect. And it's got innate wisdom that we'll never understand. And, you know, um, so yeah, I totally relate to that. And even on, you know, on today's plane, where I'm doing a lot better, but if I start to feel off, or there's some depression that comes in or something, it's like, hmm, what is my body trying to tell me right now? 
you know, what do I need to do to take, take care of myself? And, and that's the path. You know, I don't think that we ever even get out of this completely. I think it's just having a greater level of an awareness, um, viewing it in a way that it's, it's not a bad thing and we're not being hard on ourselves because like shame is like the most toxic poison <laughs> and the biggest obstacle that we will ever have on our healing journey, no matter what we're healing from. Yeah. And yeah, that was missing for me for a long time. And the shame is what was driving the behaviors. Mm -hmm. So that can be its own uh, driver and avoidance of shame. That would be a whole nother podcast. Uh, what I wanted to touch on before we go, we don't have much time left, is that uh, I want to get a little controversial. And you work uh, a little bit outside of the box, even when it comes to more progressive um recovery approaches and that is the involvement or you know integration work around uh plant medicine and psychedelics when it comes to uh recovery and some people might be like wait wait a minute are you talking about like doing drugs to stop doing drugs is there a conflict there a contradiction and um a lot of people don't know this, and I'm sure you know the story better than I do, but I know this to be true, is that the original 12-step program involved LSD, and that Bill, uh, the founder, utilized LSD in his recovery, and that originally it was going to be part of the situation, to my understanding, and it was removed, and they went more of a teetotaler type of uh, direction, but I can speak, and I'm willing to speak from experience and of experience of a lot of people in my life that uh, psychedelics and, and plant medicines have um, helped the process a lot when it comes to shifting behaviors and shifting addictions and patterns and recovery from things like trauma and from uh, just these loops and patterns. And so I guess I'm just going to leave it open-ended and see what you have to say back to that and not ask a specific question, but um, what have you got to say around that? Yeah, Michael, thank you. My favorite topic. So yeah, my, my 13th step was yoga. My 14th step was nutrition. My 15th step was Ibogaine. So and what's Ibogaine? It's a plant medicine that I'll get into it a little bit. It's the, it's the most powerful addiction interrupter on the planet. Uh, that I know of. Um, and I've really gone around the world and checked almost everything out. So, um, so first of all, what you were saying about psychedelics, um, and the history of AA is correct. Um, and you can actually read about it in the big book and Bill Wilson's story. And it starts in Towns hospital in New York city in the 1930s, where he went through four entheogenic treatments called the ben Belladonna treatment. And it's in the big book. Um, I taught big books uh, workshop for uh, six years to many hundreds of people. Um, and so he went through the Belladonna treatment several times, which was an entheogenic psychedelic um, therapy that was highly detoxifying um, as well as very powerful psychedelic, I, uh, I think four times. Um, and then the fourth time he was brought in a spiritual aspect that's now AA and has been able to stay recovered. Um, it was so successful that at the time there was a physician that ran the, the drunk ward, quote unquote, in um, the depression era 
at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which is a very famous psychiatric ward. Uh, this physician was also um, Theodore Roosevelt's personal physician at the time, and they were seeing such great success rates at Towns Hospital with this belladonna treatment, which is similar to Ibogaine, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute here, that they were running this belladonna treatment at Bellevue Hospital for over 20 years. They didn't understand the continuum of care, the holistic model of addiction recovery back then. They were looking for a cure, quote unquote, and it wasn't curing addiction, which we don't cure chronic conditions typically. So they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. Fast forward, Bill Wilson um, writes the big book in 1939 and goes on to develop this beautiful system that we still have today all over the world. And then in the 1950s, he went into do research for LSD for 10 years because his depression was so bad. And um, so many people in the fellowship were struggling and chronic relapsing. And so after about 10 years of research in the field and being, I think out of Huxley was quoted as calling him the, Bill Wilson, the greatest social architect of the 20th century. Um, he brought it back to the board at AA and they voted it out as being something that um, would be part of the program for people who were still struggling. He also went on to do 13 years of research with nutrition and tried to get that into the 12-step program as well, which was also voted out because back then they didn't understand um, the role of nutrients and physical health. But um, so my story is, is that I, you know, I was in um, the traditional recovery model. I did leaps and bounds of improvement, but like I said, um, I still had some depression, anxiety had gotten better, but it was still there. Um, and then like you'd mentioned a little while ago, you know, like switching the opiates out for marathon running, I'd switched my addiction out for becoming a drop dead workaholic. Uh, I had a small girl, I was running myself ragged and to talk about adrenal fatigue. And um, so I, and I'd also been diagnosed with PTSD and all the, all the things. And so, you know, I, the guidance of my first sponsor was really hesitant towards medication. I don't have any opinion either way. Um, but I chose to not go that route and go more the spiritual route, but I was also brought to my knees because I wasn't functioning and I couldn't find the tools I needed. I'd been to India like three times, uh, really deep yoga practice. I was doing the nutrition, I was therapy, all the things, and I still was suffering. And so I'd seen a few of my friends go down to some clinics in Mexico that had been like high functioning opiate addicts. Uh, go down and get this treatment and come back in like two weeks and be completely different people, completely different people. And so it was my last ditch effort after following six years of abstinence-based sobriety before I went to my psychiatrist to get on medication so I could just function because I had a two-year-old girl to take care of. And I went down there and I took the treatment and it brought me through my entire life. It showed me where my original injuries had happened on the emotional level. It showed me, you this know, was the Ibogaine, the Ibogaine. Yeah. It just brought me through. So I had all these visions. And then um, what I also did, cause I asked, show me why I wasn't feeling good. And I'd had this voice in my head that so much of it was actually in our bodies, which we're conditioned to not believe. Um, and it went through and it cleaned my gut out. It cleaned my liver out. It cleaned my heart brain out. It cleaned my brain out. And after my treatment, I came out of it and I realized for the very first time in my life that I felt good in my own skin and that my recovery of six years comparing to how I'd felt at this time versus like, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing much better than I was back then. I was credit, like setting an incredibly like low bar for myself 
because I was comparing to how I was feeling now to like almost dead and that I had been born this way. And it showed me that I was born with like intergenerational trauma and that the post-traumatic stress had been carried from mother to unborn fetus for like generations in my family. And that that's the work I really needed to do to heal. Um, I'd never been in my body where I didn't have any anxiety. I had no pain, nothing. And so um, at that point I came home and decided to dissolve my former career, which was very lucrative and I was very successful in. And I went back to school and I, to do all the things I do with people now. So um, I've seen miracles um, with psychedelics for addiction recovery um, and trauma recovery where I have not been able to see anything else even scrape the surface. And, um, you know, so yeah, I'm a huge advocate for- So if people want to, um you mentioned the ibogaine and there's also the iboga at the plant where it comes from can you just give us uh that's what we're talking that's the medicine she's talking about specifically when we're saying psychedelics we're talking about blanket statement about a bunch of different things but specifically your experiences with the ibogaine can you uh just give a brief intro to what that is and then um maybe a little bit now obviously we're talking about subjects here that are not something you can just like Google and go do, um, nor would we recommend that necessarily. But if somebody um, is interested, so I guess, what is it? And if somebody's interested in learning about it, is there a reputable source of information anywhere that you would recommend they check out? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, so we'll start with Iboga. Ibogaine is the extract. And also I want to say that I've seen benefit with many different medicines. This just seems to be the one that's particularly effective for mental health, unhealed trauma and addictions. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a root of a bark and it comes from a country named Gabon, Africa from the Bwiti and Pygmy people. And Gabon is like the spiritual center of, it's kind of the Tibet of Africa from what I understand. And the Bwiti aren't necessarily a tribe. It's like yogis. It's like a, like a lineage and they've been taking this bark as a initiatory um uh, rites of passage kind of thing for thousands of years many people believe that um it's what kind of aided us from um moving from being um our ape-like cousins to humans and that the, the consciousness of humanity actually came from this plant this plant is from where humans began uh, it's very deep so that's been used over there for everything for thousands of years. Um, Howard Lotsoff discovered it um, as a recreational <laughs> dose, quote unquote, in the 1970s. He was, I believe, 18, had an opiate addiction and found out after one night um, of taking the substance that he had no withdrawals and that he was felt, in fact, like reset to his pre-addictive state. So that means that not only is the cravings for the, the substance gone, the withdrawal symptoms of not taking it were not there, but then all of the things that we've been talking about today that lead people to use substances in the first place, such as the, you know, the depression, the anxiety, the, the um, carrying of the trauma is also gone. And uh, from there, the, the medicine Ibogaine was produced. The root bark is very bitter and you have to take a lot of it. It's very unpleasant for, for most people. So the Ibogaine was extracted and you can take it in a pill form. And that's used in larger doses um, to, to bring people through a process that will break their addiction. Now, that being said, 
There are contraindications. It, this isn't something that you just want to order online and do yourself. There's clinics with trained medical professionals, integration specialists, all kinds of things that need to be part of the experience. But um, unfortunately, it's Schedule 1 in the United States. So we do have clinics in Mexico, Costa Rica, New Zealand. Uh, you know, you can look around. Um, but there are quite a few of us that are working on changing that here uh, in the United States. And then you can also find benefit from Ibogaine if you're not looking for a drug detox or um, a deep healing from severe trauma. Uh, I think a lot of veterans are finding great benefit from Ibogaine floods after failure in even working with the Mayo Clinic for over 10 years. Um, but if we're not coming to it for that, a lot of people are finding benefit from just using the root bark in lower amounts where the risks that may come along with Ibogaine aren't present. Um, it's not as intensive an experience and you usually get a week long retreat um, setting where you can have more time to like work with the medicine and it will be a small group of people generally. And also we're seeing that people are really benefiting from microdosing it, which microdosing means that you're taking a small enough amount that you're having a sub-perceptual experience, which means you're not tripping, you're not high. Um, you're just getting the benefits of the medicine. And it's not just, um, you know, another example of what Ibogaine is showing promise for Iboga is um, Parkinson's disease. They're microdosing um, Parkinson's patients, which is a dopamine. Uh, that disease is, is very much related to dopamine imbalance. And so they're, they're microdosing people um, with, with iboga and the Parkinson's is turning around and the symptoms are going away. So um, there's a great potential for iboga and ibogaine to also heal chronic disease and chronic illness. Um, it's just gotten a lot of attention because it's the only thing that we found that works this well for interrupting people's addiction. And again, it's not a cure. Um, it's an interruption, but it's the kind of reset that we've been talking about that the nutrition can help with too, but it just happens in such a, a short amount of time that it can really be a life-saving thing for many people. That's really powerful stuff. And it was one that I have a couple decades of experience in research with psychedelics. And that one had kind of flown under my radar because it's not very well known in the States. And, um, I've learned a lot about it from, from you and a couple other people. And uh, I guess I want to give a little shout to all the people doing all the work, including you there and Humboldt for doing the decriminalization movements for entheogenic plants, which is now passed in several places. I know, I think Seattle, uh, Oakland, California, they're in Humboldt, I think Detroit, Michigan, I think there's Grand Rapids or another place in Michigan. I think, so when you see these ballot measures uh, that are going around right now um, for decriminalizing uh, entheogenic plants or psychedelic plants, um, supporting those measures is opening the door to these treatments being more available for people and for these uh, more people to have these opportunities for treatment centers to be able to open or anything around, you know, removing barriers and bringing things to be more accessible to people in this regard, I think is huge and not making criminals out of people who are trying to access something that could save their lives. And so if you see those measures, uh, even if you don't feel like getting involved, please vote for them. <laughs> And, and support it because there's a lot of people working really hard to, to increase access to these things for people that, you know, I've seen 
I know a, a bunch of people personally in my life whose lives have been changed by, by these things. And I'm one of them. Like, I don't know if I would be here. So I wouldn't be, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> think I would all the stuff I've done. It, I wouldn't be the same. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'd have made it through the bouts of depression that I dealt with. And so um, it's important and it's a topic that needs to be talked about. And I think that as these things become more well-researched and more understood and more prevalent and the decriminalization goes forward, you know, we're looking at a revolution, not only in mental health care, but like, like you mentioned Parkinson's disease, they're going to find things out about some of these, these plants and these substances that impact our physiology in ways that they can't mimic or create with pharmaceuticals. And most of them when done correctly or properly or safely have very little risk for uh, side effects and, and addictions and, and like things that come along, you know, you get the pharmaceutical drug. Anybody who sees those commercials is like, here's five seconds of what this drug does. And here's 35 seconds of all the ways that it can kill you or harm you Ready? Go ask your doctor for it. And with a lot of these plants, that's just simply not true. Like it's just not there. And so um, I'm not saying everybody go out, find psychedelics and pound as many of them as you can. There are people helping with this and the preparatory work and the integration work are just as important as the experience itself. So make sure that, you know, things are being done safely, but um, that's my shout to the people doing, doing the decrim work out there. And it's really important. And so uh, congratulations on getting it as far as you have around there. Yeah. You know, in the perfect world, you know, there's the steps and there's the initial um, recovery programs that are in place. There's the nutrition and lifestyle and movement. And then to you, like the, the, the secret sauce or the booster would be some like either, whether it's the Ibogaine or like plant medicines and, and things of that nature can really get deeper into the origins of the addiction more so than anything else. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where else I would have gone to heal my intergenerational trauma, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, which was the root of all of my health conditions, including my addiction. So yeah. And I mean, if, if I could give a, an example of how this all actually ties together in real life, I would love to do that just really briefly. Um, I had a client um, last year and it was actually the most rewarding and most difficult experience of my life, probably um, as far as my career goes, but he came to me and he'd been abusing nitrous and he'd been abusing ketamine and my friends knew him and called and I apprehensively said, yes, it's not usually what I take on, but I showed up thinking I was going to be able to sedate him when he woke up in a more sober, coherent state. We could talk him into going to treatment because he'd been in like a schizophrenic psychosis where he'd been violent, did a lot of very public things. It was a high profile case in my small town. And uh, I proceeded to do what I would normally to do that, but it didn't work. And I'm really familiar with what I was looking at now um, was a nitrous induced psychosis, but I, I had to learn that as we went, as I sat with him for um, 18 days when he didn't sleep, he was violent. Um, the treatment centers wouldn't take him because he was unstable. Um, the psychiatric ward is full because everybody's in crisis during COVID. Um, so he'd get out, he'd um, get arrested. They'd you know, shoot him up with Seroquel and a bunch of drugs and then like let him out of the hospital four hours later. 
and it would just get worse and worse and worse. And I was researching on this as much as I could. I called colleagues. Some of them are like, you know, top in the field and nobody really knew what to do because this is unusual. And everybody was telling me that we had to get him committed indefinitely he'd become diagnosed with schizophrenia and they'd have to be heavily medicated with like Seroquel and things for the rest of his life. And this was a brilliant man at age 30, but I found a research paper and it turned out that they had discovered that high amounts of um, nitrous can sometimes um, cause the, the receptors for vitamin B12 to not be able to uptake the B12. And that nutrient is one of um, vital nutrient to the functioning of the central nervous system. It also slows the methylation cycle, which in simple terms is the liver's ability to detoxify. So I knew that after looking at that research paper that this man was in a psychosis, not because he'd cracked and wasn't ever coming back. It's because his nervous system had no B12 and there was high levels of industrial toxicants in his body because the liver wasn't working properly and whippets where he was getting his nitrous from are full of industrial chemicals. So miraculously, we got him down to this clinic where they're giving high doses of B12, um, NAD plus, which detoxifies at the cellular level. It's another nutrient, um, all kinds of beautiful vitamins flooded through his body. But then the other thing that they were giving at this clinic is ketamine. And my, my colleagues and friends are like, you're crazy. You know, you can't detoxify somebody from dissociatives with dissociatives, and you can't treat somebody with a ketamine dependency with ketamine. But after three days of this treatment, he came back to us and he was, you know, violent and talking to himself. And like any like person you'd see homeless on the street in an escalated episode, that's what my client was like. His mother was there. She was mourning the loss of her son right in front of me in real time. It was so intense. After three days, he was back with us on this planet, knowing where he was, who he was. After six days, totally back to sanity, totally healthy, craving-free, voluntarily went to rehab. He now lives with his dad. He's back in college, has a full-time job. He's sober and he's healthy. He's medication-free. He's diagnosis-free. And he's got the rest of his life ahead of him at 30 years old. And so I just like to use that example because it was the nutrients and the psychedelics together that was able to bring this man out of what for most people would have ended up in lifelong insanity, institutionalization, homelessness, or death. And that with psychedelics and ketamine can be a good place to start for people who don't feel like leaving the country or may not have the access to plant medicines like some of us do um, to start exploring. But like, you know, even with ketamine, it can become habit forming. And that's one of the only psychedelics that has that potential but when it was used in a therapeutic set and setting, it actually broke my clients out of addiction, which ketamine was one of the dr drugs he was misusing. So I just like to have that as food for thought and give that as an example of where we can use psychedelics as part of a holistic treatment modality and even the most extreme cases and see unbelievable, unbelievable results come out of it. It's powerful stuff. And I, I'm excited to be able to talk about it more. And so um but for this conversation, we've got to end. And so we're going to have some links down below in the show notes for people can find you and your website and your social media. But uh, where would you recommend they start uh, if somebody's interested in learning about you or working with you or learning more about your work? What would you like them to check out? Yeah, you can just go to my website and I have a few free gifts on there you can sign up for. You can always contact me and schedule a free 30-minute uh, discovery session to see if there's anything that we can do together that would be beneficial for you. 
Um, and I think, um, you know, I just, I'm always putting up the latest and greatest things that I'm uncovering, you know, so, so get on my email list and stay up to date with what I'm doing. And that would be great. Um, well, that's rootsrecoveryclinic.com, right? Yeah. And then I will be, uh, launching, uh, the first round of, um, my 10 week, um, holistic health program for people recovering from addiction and mental health, where we address stress management, uh, lifestyle medicine, diets, and even exploring the potential of, of psychedelic therapies, such as microdosing for those that are interested. Um, so again, if you just go to Roots Recovery, um, I'll have information coming forward on that too. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Jen, so much. To, I'll listen to multiple times to, to grasp. There's a lot shared here and a lot of things that I think um, can benefit a lot of people, whether you're a practitioner who tends to work with people that have been through recovery or you have clients or patients, or whether you're somebody, you know, somebody in your family or somebody for yourself, or you recognize yourself and a few of the things that we talked about, but you've never considered that this might be for you. Um, so much to learn. And I'm just grateful for the work you're doing and for coming here and sharing it. And, uh, we're gonna be doing some more collaboration soon. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guest and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations and you can be started in only a few minutes if you enjoy the show please drop a rating review or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases